Welcome everybody to Bible study tonight. So glad you've decided to join us yet again for our study through the book of Acts. We're studying it because we want to relive it. And I believe we are reliving it. The more I read it, the more I realize what happened back then is happening now. And we are living it and reliving it. And I'm so grateful that we're not reliving it alone. We have the Holy Spirit in us to uh, guide us through this because it's a difficult day in which we live as it was for the early church. But it was the power of the Holy Spirit and the fellowship of the saints that got them through it and it's what will get us through it as well. So we studied through chapter 12 last week and we finished early so we got into chapter 13 just a little bit. We actually got right to uh, verse 12 and we're going to pick up this evening in verse 13 with our verse by verse study but what I'd like to do is just do a brief recap uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, just so we can uh, get on the same page and just get our mind uh, flowing in the right direction, because you know we, we're picking up a story right in the middle of it, and so we need to know what happened before, so we aren't confused. All right, uh, one thing I also mentioned last time was, or one thing I also brought with me was the Book of Acts timeline. And right now in chapter 13, we're in and around A.D. 48, which is about 18 years after the day of Pentecost, which we believe to have taken place in 30 A.D. So we're 13 chapters in, and we're about 18 years, almost two decades, into uh, the early church history. Hello, Madeline. Welcome. Glad to have you. If you'd like, there are handouts at the back on the stool, or you can just follow along in uh, Acts chapter 13. So yeah, we're in, in and around A.D. 48, so 18 to 20 years after the Ascension and the day of Pentecost. So let's read our handout summary, and then we'll just look through the verse-by-verse commentary, and then we'll pick up at verse 13. So Chapter 13 of the book of Acts describes the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas are called to preach the gospel and travel to Antioch, where Paul preached that Jesus Christ fulfilled God's promises to Israel. Now I'll stop there and just remind you that Paul and Barnabas were pastors of the church in Antioch. And we saw last week how the Holy Spirit came upon them and changed their calling from uh, pastor or shepherd to missionary evangelist. So we made some connection there about our preaching series on the gifts of the Spirit, how uh, all the gifts are resident in the Spirit and He apportions them to who He wills and uh, He gives the gifts to whoever he wills. So they were working in this gift of shepherding care in Antioch at the church there, and the Holy Spirit decides, hey, I want these guys to be missionary evangelists and go on missionary journeys, planting churches. 
And so he apportions that gift to them. And the amazing thing is Paul and Barnabas obeyed immediately because uh, that's what you should do when the Holy Spirit calls you. When God tells you to do something, just do it. Just do it. So they began traveling, and their message was that Jesus Christ fulfilled God's promises. Um, They traveled to Cyprus, and then they continued to preach the gospel. Now in Perga, John Mark leaves the group and returns to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas continue to preach in Antioch in Pisidia, where they are met with opposition from the Jews. Uh, We will read that Paul curses a sorcerer, and he continues to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So in verses 1 and 2, we read about how the church in Antioch was a missionary church. It was not the church in Jerusalem, which was filled with Jewish converts to Christianity, Uh, Antioch and the church in Antioch became the epicenter for the Gentile church as Jerusalem was the epicenter for the Jewish church. And when I say Jewish church, I don't mean a mixture of Judaism and Christianity. I just mean they were national Jews, national Israelites by blood. Uh, That was what their citizenship was, but they became followers of Christ. They converted from Judaism to follow Jesus. And so uh, this church in Antioch was known as a missionary church. The Holy Spirit chose Saul and Barnabas. Um, It is Barnabas and Saul at first, but Saul becomes the leader. And uh, God changes his name to Paul, and the team becomes Paul and Barnabas. Now Barnabas was a Jewish Christian that went down to Antioch to bring the gospel there. Paul also was a Jew, but he was a Roman citizen as well, and he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so I think that's why we see the, the names flip from Barnabas and Saul to Paul and Barnabas. Um, verse 4 tells us that these two men were led by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't their own doing. It was the Holy Spirit in them that led them. They began at Salamis on the island of Cyprus, But there was uh, no conspicuous conversions there. And then in verses 6 to 12, we discovered that they crossed the island of Paphos, where Paul encounters Elymas, the sorcerer. Um, Some of your translations uh, call him Bar-Jesus. Elymas was calling himself the son of Jesus, and he was performing miracles with the power of the demonic and gave him the appearance of being from God, but... Paul knew the difference, called him out on it, and um, Elymas is rooted. He's rebuked by Paul and Sergius Paulus, uh, who was the, what was that word? He was the, I'm looking at, oh yeah, he was the Roman proconsul there in Antioch. So he was high up. He was a political figure there in Antioch. And he was being persuaded by this uh, Elymas, this guy going by the name of Bar-Jesus. He was being led astray by him with these false miracles and false teachings. Paul and Barnabas show up, teach the real gospel. And when Paul rebukes the sorcerer and he becomes 
uh, what is it, blind, I think, for a little while. When he becomes blind, it causes uh, the proconsul, Paulus, to become a true believer. And, of course, this is when Saul changes his name to Paul. And, um, yeah, there's just a couple little other comments there. So now let's pick up in uh, chapter 13, verse 13. And I want to confirm for the record that this sorcerer was blind for a while. Let me just look at that. Um, Verse 11. Was I right? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you'll be blind and unable to see for see the sun for a time. So that, that miracle, that sign, that wonder was performed in order that the proconsul, um, Sergius Paulus, you see his name there earlier in the chapter, would become a true believer, a true convert to Christianity uh, and not believe some other gospel. So verse 13, here we are. Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So the companions of Paul were Barnabas and John Mark. But at this time, John Mark leaves them and returns to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas continue on, verse 14. But they went on from Perga, And came down to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, I think it's important to point that out. That still, almost 20 years later, uh, these apostles are giving uh, reverence, I guess, or they're keeping holy. This Sabbath day, on that Sabbath day, they find themselves at synagogue. They find themselves, you know, gathering together with the body of Christ. It's something that they were, of course, used to. They were raised with it. And it's a habit that they continued even after uh, 20 years and beyond. Because as we talked about in our spiritual disciplines series... The, the law of Sabbath and the covenant of Sabbath preceded Moses. It's way back in Genesis where God gives the gift of Sabbath to people. Uh, the Sabbath was made for man, that we would rest, that we would take time out to worship God, to join with other saints and uh, have fellowship and to break bread and things of that nature. So it's just interesting to point out that still... Almost 20 years later, they're meeting on the Sabbath day, and they're going into the synagogue. Now, of course, part of the reason for that is there's still Jews practicing Judaism who are going to synagogue on the Sabbath. And so these men, these apostles, they're going in and meeting the people where they're at, sure enough, but also uh, they're observing it as well, and they're meeting together on uh, these these days as well, that to have a day set aside for the Lord. And so they went into the synagogues and they sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up 
and motioning with his hand, said. So here we get Paul's first real sermon of any length anyway. Uh, We've read a number of Peter's sermons. We've heard a sermon from Stephen, the board member, the deacon, who was the first martyr of the church. Uh, We've heard a sermon from Philip so far, but we've not yet heard a real sermon from Paul. And so here we're going to get our first sermon from the Apostle Paul, and it's it's a good one. So he says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. He addresses his audience, and he calls them to listen up. Uh, Verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. So Paul's going to preach the gospel here, but he's going to go back to the beginning. He's going all the way back to Egypt and how the favor of God was upon the, uh, the descendants of Jacob or the descendants of Israel. And God made them great in the land through Joseph. But we know, of course, there was a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph, and he oppressed the people of Israel and made them slaves. But God led them out of that slavery, led them out of their bondage in Egypt. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I love that phrase, he put up with them. Has God ever put up with you? I know he's put up with me. He's put up with me for a long time, and I'm glad he does. I'm glad he's patient, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. If God wasn't patient, there'd be no hope for any of us. And so we see here, Paul is telling these people, God is a deliverer, God is patient. Okay? He's setting the stage here because he's going he's gonna to swing the sword of the Spirit soon, and he's going to cut straight to the heart. But he's setting the stage, he's setting them up, he's getting them ready. So he says, The Lord led him out of it, and for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So here he's giving God all the credit. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, God gave them their land. He doesn't give credit to Israel and the armies of Israel or the leaders of Israel. He gives all the credit to God. And he says God is the one that gave them this land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin. For 40 years, Saul was king. The same amount of years that they wandered in the wilderness, they had Saul as king. And you'll remember that um, God was going to be the king of Israel. He had plans to do that, but the people wanted a king like the surrounding nations. And so God, again, was patient and put up with them and gave them what they asked for. And so for 40 years, Saul, son of Kish, 
from the tribe of Benjamin was king over Israel. But ultimately, God removed him, verse 22, and God raised up David to be their king, a man after his own heart, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So Saul was king by will of the people. They wanted a king, and they got a king. They got a big king, a tall king, a handsome king, a king that looked like a king, who acted like a king. He acted just like the kings of the surrounding nations. Uh, He gave God lip service at times, pretended to honor God, pretended to obey God, but for the most part, Saul was in it for himself. Saul, king of Israel, not Saul of Tarsus. But during that 40 years, God was preparing another person, a young boy, David, to be their king. A man after his heart who would do all that God wanted. Now, was David perfect? Absolutely not. He was very flawed. He wasn't a great father. Um, He uh, was an unfaithful husband, and he was a conniver. Uh, and a deceiver, and a manipulator, and, and, and a murderer by all accounts. But yet God called him a man after his own heart. Uh, it's not because of his perfect record in, in the behavior category, but that his heart, his heart was in the right place. It was tender before God. I mean, even after he commits adultery with Bathsheba, he... he uh, writes that famous psalm, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. That's what he wanted more than anything else. Was he human? Yeah, and flawed? Big time. But his heart was tender towards God. And David is a foreshadow of the new covenant believer who has a heart after God as well. We still have our old thinking, and we still have our old acting at times. That's being transformed and conformed and reformed. But our heart, our nature, is brand new. That's the old that has passed away, and behold, the new has come. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 And so that's what's happening here God is preparing someone after his own heart that would do all his will. Verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Uh, Before his coming, referring to Jesus, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, the descendant of David. But behold, after me comes one um, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Verse 26, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham. So he's appealing to their heritage. He's appealing to their history the thing that matters the most to them. He's appealing to that now, and he says, 
and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. So go back there to verse 15 and just look. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue, so the people that should know, I don't want to call them the pastors, but they were certainly the leaders. They were the ones in charge over the synagogue. They were the ones that read the law and prophets. They're the ones that should have known. They're the ones that should have recognized it and didn't. And so they ask you know, Paul to stand up and give a word of encouragement. And so he does. He sets the stage. And then he says to them, you're reading from the law and prophets every Sabbath. Back at verse 27. But Jesus fulfilled them. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. Uh, verse 30, or sorry, 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he witnessed to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Guess how many days? Forty days. Forty days he was with them after his resurrection. He showed himself to over 500 witnesses at one time, Paul says in another book. For many days he appeared to those who had come uh, up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem and who are now his witnesses to the people. Verse 32. Actually, let's stop there and look at verse 31. His witnesses to the people. Those are the same people, I believe, that were in the upper room. Uh, the context would, would suggest that. It says that uh, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead, and then for many days he appeared to those who'd come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And remember, Jesus said to them, don't leave Jerusalem. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, but don't leave Jerusalem until you get the Holy Spirit. And so I believe that these people who are now his witnesses were those very people. 500 people witnessed him after his resurrection, but 110 went to the upper room. 110 stayed there. 110 were filled with the Holy Spirit, were given the ability to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They prophesied in a foreign language the works and wonders of God, and it was a sign to the unbelievers who were in Jerusalem on that weekend to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost that this Jesus whom they crucified was the Son of God, was the Messiah to take away the sins of the world. Those same people are now the witnesses to Christ. They've been doing it for almost 20 years. They are the witnesses to all the people. So remember, they're in Antioch now, so they're well past Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. They're into the ends of the earth now, these witnesses. Okay, verse 32. And we bring you good news, or the good news, uh, 
that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus Christ, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. In verse 35, therefore he says in another psalm, you will not be, oh, sorry, you will not let your holy one see corruption. In other words, what, what Paul is saying here in quoting these texts, he's saying Jesus died and rose again, and he's never going to die again. He died once for all, which is a big theme in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. He did it one time, and it worked. He was the perfect and uh, yeah, he was the perfect propitiation for our sins. He satisfied God's wrath perfectly one time. And he satisfied God's wrath for all the sin of humanity, past, present, and future. That's why he's able to forgive all our sin, because he was the perfect satisfaction for our sin. Verse 36, for David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. His body was decayed. It returned to the dust from which it was formed. Jesus, however, was not formed from dust. He was begotten uh, of Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit. He did not have an earthly father, so he was not born in the image of Adam. He was born perfect. That's why the virgin birth is so important. You can't just... You can't have a, um, a lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world without a virgin birth. Jesus, though he, his body died, it did not see corruption. It did not return to the dust from which it came because it did not come from the dust. And uh, David prophesied that, that his Holy One would not see corruption. But Paul says David, after he served God's purpose, he went to sleep, he died, uh, and he was laid with his fathers, and his body decayed. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption, did not see decay. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Let's stop there. Isn't that amazing? So now he's swinging the sword of the Spirit. He's wielding it. He's taking a slice at these, um, at these people who asked him to stand up and give a word of encouragement. And uh, this word of encouragement seems like a really intense word of encouragement. But it's the gospel. That's why I say the gospel is the most offensive message in the whole Bible. It's not... Um, sunshine and rainbows. It's, listen, Jesus died for your sin to satisfy God's wrath for your sin. You killed him. Our sin is what nailed him there. His love for us is what kept him there. He could have called 10,000 angels to take him down from there, but he didn't. But our sin is what nailed him there. He went there for us. And... Um, if we would believe that, we can be free. We can be free, I love this, from everything 
from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, there's a lot of people in our world today that don't have a clue what the law of Moses is, but yet they are still trying to be freed by something that cannot free them. Uh, They're trying to be freed by something called equity, diversity, inclusion. They're trying to be freed by something called autonomy. Just be yourself. They're trying to be freed by something called live your truth. Um, These are all lies. These are all things that cannot truly free a person. Just like the law of Moses couldn't free the Jews, no philosophy of man uh, can ever free a person. Oh, it might give the appearance or the illusion of freedom for a while, but it becomes itself another yoke of bondage. Uh, The more inclusive you try to be, uh, the more divisive you will become. We see that in our world today. I mean, if ever we should be inclusive, it's in our world because it seems like it's the only thing the world ever talks about. And yet we're more divided than ever. Why? Because it's a, it's a philosophy of man. It's, it's, uh, it's a spirit of the age. It's, it's a doctrine of, um, of, of demons. It only puts us under bondage because it's not from God. Does God invite everyone, the whosoever will, into his kingdom? Yes, through one way. There's, and then the, the Bible says that Christ is the one who broke down the dividing wall so that all could come through him. But as we see in our world today, the more inclusive we try to be, the more dividing walls we put up, the more categories they make. Well, you're this and you're that, and you go by these letters, and you go by that color, and you go by, uh, you know, you're from this country, and we put all these uh, dividing walls up, and we're more divided than ever. And our favorite word in the culture today is inclusion and inclusivity. You can see how these things don't free us. They actually put us under a yoke of bondage, which Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5. For freedom you have been set free. No longer to be subject to a yoke of bondage. And so he says to these people who gathered at the synagogue on Sabbath, Jesus is able to free you from that which the law of Moses could not free you. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come true about you. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Which is fascinating to me. I mean, we talked tonight in the prayer room, praise reports of miracles and healings, and, you know, for us, that just uh, boosts our faith. It makes us excited. There are other people that will hear and see that, and it won't change them one bit. They can see a miraculous healing. They can see a wonder, a sign, and it won't move them. Their hearts are hard towards God. They're scoffers. Um, They see the works of God right in front of them, and yet they do not believe it, even though they can see it. But for as many as do see it, right? For as many as do receive Jesus, 
it, it, it causes us, or sorry, allows us to be called sons and daughters of God and causes us to believe and have even greater faith. Verse 42. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might not be told of them. Or sorry, might not be told them <laughs> the next Sabbath day. Isn't that funny? They heard the gospel. They heard a very, this is Paul, like I said, Paul's first sermon. It's a great sermon. He goes right back to the beginning, and he brings it right up to present day. And he tells them at the end, beware, lest what the prophet said comes true about you, that you're a scoffer, that you're astounded, and yet you perish. For God is doing a work, and you don't believe it, even though you've seen it with your own eyes. And the next thing they say is, don't say these things to us again. They begged that these things um, might be told them the next Sabbath day. And after meeting, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many of the Jews and devout converts uh, to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Uh, you know, I have, I've added a word here in verse 42. They begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Not, might not be told them. So they wanted to hear it again. Um, and then verse 43, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, the Jews and the devout converts of, uh, to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas and uh, spoke with them saying to continue in the grace of God. So the next Sabbath day, look at this, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's a pretty good uh, that's a pretty good sermon when, you know, a few people that were at synagogue that first Sabbath heard the gospel and asked, uh, come back next week. We want to hear it again. And then the next week, the whole city gathers to hear the word of God. They pack the place out. They have to rope off some chairs for overflow. And you know what? No one complained about it. I'm adding that to the text as well. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So yeah, the whole, uh, the whole city shows up to hear this word of the Lord, verse 44, verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. And they reviled him. So yeah, that's, that's the point I wanted to make. I knew when I was studying this this afternoon, I knew there was an opposition to it. Just to be clear, I misread verse 42 when I said that they didn't want Paul to come back. They did. They wanted Paul to come back and preach the gospel again, but it was the, it was the Jews when they saw the crowds who were jealous that wanted to contradict Paul, and they reviled him. They made fun of him. They slandered him. Verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside, judge for yourselves. Unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So the Jews were upset that Paul and Barnabas were drawing a big crowd. I can imagine that there wasn't many people at synagogue um, at Antioch in Pisidia. Maybe there were just a few people there gathering each week. And then here shows up Paul and Barnabas preaching this 
gospel that you know proclaims Jesus Christ as the Savior and the Messiah and the, the one who can forgive sins. And the next week, the whole city shows up to the meeting. And uh, they're jealous. And so they want Paul to, uh, to stop preaching. And Paul, of course, says to them, okay, we're going to turn our attention to the Gentiles then. Because uh, the Lord commanded us, saying, I've made you a light to the Gentiles. So remember I said at the beginning of the study, Antioch becomes the epicenter for the Gentile church. And so here we can see a bunch of Gentiles hearing the gospel preached by Paul and Barnabas and getting saved, coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. The first Sabbath they preached to the Jews. They didn't really want to hear much about it. Um, The Jewish people, that is. But then when they went out, the Gentiles said, come back, we want to hear it again. So let's get ready to close out the chapter, uh, verse 48 to 50. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now this is a great passage for predestination, isn't it? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Well, how many was it? Was it 10? Was it 20? Was it 30? Was it some and not others? No, it was whoever would believe. You know, a great doctrine on predestination, I heard, was from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. He said, if you want to know if you're predestined for salvation, go to Jesus and ask. He'll say yes. And so when I read this, I go, isn't this amazing that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So as many as the Spirit was drawing, and we know that no one can come to the Father except the Spirit draw them, So as many as the Spirit was drawing, they received eternal life. They believed. They confessed with their mouth. They believed in their heart that Jesus Christ was Lord, that God raised him from the dead, and they were saved. Because God always predestined that the Gentiles would be included in his family. It wasn't ever supposed to be just Israel. It was always going to be every tribe nation, and tongue. Uh, That's my philosophy, or my theology, rather, on predestination. Not that God selects some and not others. Not that he pre-selects who's in and pre-selects who's out. But that he pre-selected that whoever will would come to him. And so it's important for us as evangelicals to preach the gospel and to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in drawing. It's... um, It's a beautiful symmetry, or a symbiosis, rather, that we have with the Spirit who lives in us. He does what only He can do, and we do what He calls us to do. Um, Verse 47, Paul says that very same thing. The Lord commanded us, saying, go to the Gentiles and preach. Bring a light to them. And as many as were appointed into salvation or to eternal life, verse 48 says, they believed. Now, verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. That's what the word of the Lord does. When you preach it, it spreads. Verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. So not only does the word spread when it is preached, 
but persecution arises when the word is preached. And we've seen that from chapter 1 all the way now through to the end of chapter 13, that when the word of God is being preached, persecution is sure to follow. We love to, and we should, quote the uh, passage that says, signs and wonders accompany the preaching of the word, and surely it does, and surely we want it to. But we can't forget that persecution also accompanies the preaching of the word as well. And so the Jews who were jealous just a few verses earlier, they incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out, saying, get out of here. But what did they do? They shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Who were the disciples? Those who were appointed to eternal life and who believed in verse 48. They were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This persecution didn't bother them. It didn't dissuade them. Um, this, you know, this preaching duo that they listened to for, you know, who knows how long, um, that they listened to and who drew big crowds and, you know, they believed their message. When the persecution came and they were drove out, they weren't filled with fear. Uh, they weren't filled with regret. They weren't filled with, uh, mm, maybe I shouldn't believe in this Jesus. No, it says they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And, of course, that's what happens to all believers who face persecution. God gives us the grace to endure. He gives us joy unspeakable and full of glory. He gives us the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, and he gives us his Holy Spirit to lead and guide us, to comfort us, and to be to us absolutely everything that we need. Paul and Barnabas are forced to flee to Iconium. They don't want to leave, but they're forced to leave, and so they shake the dust off their feet. It's a... It's a uh, you know, and, and I guess you could say it's kind of a rebuke to the people of Antioch, a, a judgment even. We don't want to take even the dust from this city with us. So they shake it off and they leave and they, uh, they leave them to their own devices. But those who were disciples, well, they were filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> 